Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Acts 18, but we're going to first look at Revelation 12 if you want to find your place there. Uh, not hard to find there. Of course, it's at the back of the Bible. Um, if you have a lot of notes and maps and concordances, it may be a little bit uh, away from the back. But Revelation 12 and then Acts 18, we'll spend um, uh, the, the latter part of our um, study together. But uh, we're we're going to be talking about Paul's uh, continuation as he moves throughout Europe. He's going to come to the place to the city of Corinth tonight, um, and I, and I feel like it's a good opportunity. I've been kind of sitting on this Revelation 12 uh, study for a little while. I uh, felt like it was a good good time to kind of insert this into our conversation with Acts because it kind of helps inform uh, what's going on at this point in Acts and what's going on at really the latter stages of Acts kind of helps us understand what the church is facing. So I think we'll have a good conversation tonight and I uh, think it'll be a really interesting conversation around God's Word. So glad you guys are here for that. Um, uh, all throughout Acts so far, um, we've seen some consistent themes. Um, we've kind of followed some of the, the, these themes from the very beginning, um, and, and two of the constant themes have been that the church has been under, uh, or there have been constant attacks on the church and attempts to stop it from going and growing. Now, we've seen that from the very beginning, haven't we? Whether it was the uh, Jew, Jew, Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, uh, and, and whether it was the internal quibbles uh, from the Pharisees and from the, from the Jewish believers that didn't want the church to accept Gentiles. We've seen this conflict from the very beginning, that there have been constant attacks on the church, from within the church, with the purpose of and with the intentions of stopping the church from going and growing, whether it was the Jews trying to stop it from getting started or the, the Pharisees trying to stop it from continuing, the attempts to stop it from going and from growing. But the other constant has been that there has been this unrelenting devotion and this unstoppable expansion of the church. So no matter how many attacks and how many attempts to stop it, there has been this unrelenting devotion from within it and from the people that joined it, devotion and this unstoppable expansion. So even though there were attempts to stop it from going and growing, it continued to go and it continued to grow. So we've seen, yeah, there's this constant theme of attack, but there's this constant theme of persistence in this unstoppable expansion. Now, these attacks haven't only been from expected corners. We've seen them from unexpected or from unnecessary sources as well, outside and from within. And this set a precedent that we should pay attention to because what began then continues today, all these years later, um, and it's echoed by the words of Peter. We've looked at this passage before, but First Peter chapter 4, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. What's the word? To test you. Now, Peter's talking about persecution. He's talking about opposition. He's talking about the, the forces of this world or even the forces from within the church that attempt us from going and growing. Now, anytime there is some sort of agenda to stop the church from going on its mission and from growing, it is from this source of the enemy, this persecution that's attempting or that's testing us as in trying to, to cause us to wonder, you know, what are we really in this for the right reasons? Are we going to persist through this? Are we going to push past this? 
He says, don't be surprised at these tests, as if something strange has happened to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, that, that phrase, when, is pointing forward to the, the time when the, the church is called back or called up to heaven. So we understand that our mission is not finished yet. Until it is finished, we will face these trials, we will face opposition, we will face attacks and attempts to stop us from going and growing, but until that day comes that we're called to heaven, we must press forward, we must push on, we must press on, we must not uh, give in. So we rejoice, knowing that our sufferings and struggles are like Christ and in turn like those of the early church. What we focused on and what we've made a focus on in our study in Acts so far is to adopt the same notion of determination and resilience. So what we want as the church in 2021 is to have the same determination and resilience as the church had in 31, 41, 51 in the time that we're reading about in Acts. We want to have that same determination and resilience as they had, that same unbreakable spirit as they did so that we might prove to be as as unstoppable as they were. If we made that our single focus as a church, that we want to come together, we want to be an unstoppable force, we want to have an unbreakable spirit, we want determination and resilience like they had, I mean, we would have a lot more, we would have, our goals would be pretty oriented and pretty squared away, and we would be more, um, you know, we would have a a, a litmus test to, to, to focus on. And we would, we would know that there is not a single day where we must not uh, press forward. Now, Acts 18 is going to be yet another example, maybe the best example yet, of the unstoppable force behind the church and the unstoppable courage of the church. Again, Acts 18 might be the best example yet. Now, every chapter in Acts is a, in the, is a t- testament to this, the unstoppable force behind it, the unstoppable courage of it and within it. But Acts 18 might be the best example yet. Now, as we've covered, Acts was a watershed moment. Acts 16 was a watershed moment for the church and for world history as Christianity spread into the European front from Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and then Athens. Acts 17 was an even bigger moment for the church and for world history as the church, as Christianity, uh, you know, broke out. Um, in Europe and, and specifically in Greece. Um, the breakout of Christianity at Athens cannot be overstated as one of the most significant moments of all time. And, and I know that might sound kind of biased coming from me and coming from the church, but I truly believe it was one of the most significant moments in history as this epicenter and stronghold of paganism a place where humanity bemoaned its religion and bemoaned its bondage to religion, yet admitted its necessity. A place where philosophy sprouted, not as an alternative to religion, but as a supplement to it, in efforts to protect humanity from the gods. Philosophy came from this place where humanity knew that the gods had their number, the gods had them in their corner, and there was no avoiding them. Uh, The Greeks had long given up on being at peace with the gods because the gods didn't care about people. They knew that, and and, and they had kind of come to terms with that. So they devoted their lives to trying to find some way to please them or at least pacify them through their philosophy. When Paul showed up at Mars Hill with a message from God, the one true God, not the pantheon of gods, 
claiming that God's posture toward humanity was not hostile, not aggressive, not judgmental, nor vengeful, but loving, reconciliatory, and gracious. And, and that really got the ears, got the attention of the people. The people at first thought he was babbling, you know, what is this nonsense this Jewish man has to say? But as they listened to him, it, it became clear that he was not a babbler, but he was a preacher of the hope they had been longing to hear, uh, bringing a message of hope and salvation. Paul didn't win the whole city of Athens, but he won enough people, enough to make a splash in the Roman world. He preached that from one God came all people. So that's what really made Paul's message, I think, valid to the people and really uh, credible to the people. That he didn't come saying, hey, I come from the corner of the world where my God's greater than your God. We're, great, we're better than you as a people. Paul said, let me just get this straight. I'm a Jewish man. I serve the Jewish God, but our God is the one true God. He made y'all too, and he loves y'all just the same. And he sent me to show y'all that even on the other side of the world, you're his people too. If only Christians had that united nature in our message today, that we weren't so tribal, uh, we were as, as seeking to, to unite the world as Paul did. He told the Greeks that God was their God as well, that he created them just the same, and that the same God sent a Savior to come as one of all the people to save all the people. And Paul then preached Jesus, and he led many people to faith in Christ uh, there at Mars Hill. And in that moment... It, again, that significance in that moment cannot be overstated. This sent ripple effects throughout the kingdoms of men. More than that, though, it sent shockwaves across the kingdom of darkness, shaking the already split foundation of hell. And every once in a while, and this is kind of where we're going to camp out a little bit tonight to kind of understand what's going on behind the scenes, what's going on where we can't see. Kind of like the book of Job, you get to see what's going on backstage between God, the enemy, and, and, and heaven, and all, what's going on in heaven. Tonight, we're going to pull that curtain back, and I think we're going to have a good time with it. But every once in a while, from time to time, the God of this world, Jesus said the devil is the God of this world because the world's fallen, the world's given to sin. Every once in a while, from time to time, the God of this world cracks his whip to scare God's people to stun lost people, and to sick his people on the rest. Do you, do you, do you understand how, to, how that kind of flows? Every once in a while, the devil cracks the whip on this world to scare the people of God, to stun those that may be sensitive to God and that may be seeking after God, those that have not found him yet or have not trusted yet, but may be, well, sensitive to, and to sick his minions on the rest. The Bible teaches us that this cycle, this is the cycle that we are in in this fallen world. As we are on mission to evangelize it and usher in the kingdom era, to counter the works of darkness with the deeds of light, as we do our job, as we spread the light and sprinkle salt and establish refuge, Satan will fight God's people. He will. I don't say this to cause anybody to be paranoid. I don't say this to worry anybody, uh, but these are just the facts. It's been this way since God's redemption plan began, from when the Jews were facing Pharaoh in Egypt, to when they were in Babylon, uh, to Israel's own fallen government fighting against Jesus, to now Rome. Now, I promise this pertains to Acts 18, but before we study uh, Acts 18, I want us to actually look at Revelation 12, which frames all of this for us. 
and, and kind of lets us know what's going on behind the scenes. I think it's a good time we do this study. Uh, again, I've been keeping this on deck for a while because of what's about to happen in Acts. So I think you'll enjoy it tonight. And I mentioned that behind the scenes, kind of behind the curtain, the word revelation is the Greek word apocalypse, but literally the word apocalypse means to reveal. Now we think apocalypse means bad, we think it means, you know, chaos and judgment. The word apocalypse just means to pull back, to, be, to peel back the surface and let you see behind the scenes. That's what Revelation means. Nothing scary, nothing intimidating. It, it, a lot of the people in today's time and world have made it so convoluted, really unnecessarily convoluted. But Revelation simply means we're going to look behind the curtains to see what's going on behind the scenes that we might be informed and have an informed understanding of what we see and what we are, are facing. And the whole book of Revelation is really an allegory of the struggle between the rising kingdom of God and the fallen kingdom of this world. Now, allegory means kind of a picture that's told through very dramatic words, very you know dramatic images. Uh, I'm not 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 to say that the the the, inf- the information given is not true. It's just told in a very dramatic way and, and, and in a very kind of you know um, elaborate way to get our attention. Some say it, some believe it was written uh, sort of in a veiled language. Language to protect the church from the Roman Empire. That could be the case. We don't really know. We just know that this is what John was given. But again, the idea of revelation, the idea of revealing, um, it, it, it's meant to kind of be mystic, but I don't believe it's as hard to unpack as some people make it, and I don't believe it's as esoteric and as kind of abstract as some people make some of these, the, the, take some of these images and go really far-fetched with them. So I think tonight we'll kind of help you understand how you should read the book. Now, again, this is just a brief overview of one chapter, so this isn't a a deep dive. Now, we'll talk about it at greater length one day, but an important thing to note about Revelation, it's meant to be understood as a single revelation. It's not meant to be understood as a timeline of events. So anytime anybody comes to you and says, Revelation is a timeline, this is chapter 4 starts here, chapter 20, don't, you know, that's not how Revelation should be, should be seen. Now that might be contrary to some circles that have taught and teach the book. I'm just giving you the way I believe it should be taught, and that's my job to do that. Um, so the clue that this is how Revelation is meant to be studied is actually given in the prologue, which most people just skip over, which is, I think, kind of how we get in the mess that we get in with the book. When John begins witnessing his vision, Jesus gives him this introduction. Now, the first two words are very important. Fear not. So I'm giving you this revelation, John, first of all, first and foremost, so that you will not be afraid of the things that are about to happen, the things that you're going to live through. And this is to every generation of Christians. Fear not. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, why, that's, why is that important? Jesus is telling John, John, as a Christian in a fallen world, death and hell are roaring their ugly head. They are trying to assert their dominance, but they are defeated. They are Their time is short. They are on bar time. I have won that battle. I'm I'm letting things persist because I want to win as many people over to the kingdom of God as we can. Therefore, sin has to be, uh, you know, sin's not going to be judged yet because I'm, you know, not sending people there. So death and Hades rear their heads, rear their heads, but they will not win and they are not going to win. I have the keys. And this is what Jesus says next. This is very important. This part, this verse informs the whole book. 
Write, therefore, the things you have seen, the things that are, and those that are to take place after this. So here's what John is saying. Here's what Jesus is telling John, that the things he's going to write about. Everything that you read about in Revelation has taken place, is taking place, and will take place. Now, that might be completely confusing, but the point is this. The things that Revelation talks about deals with the conflict between the kingdoms of the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of man. The kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. The rising kingdom and the falling kingdom. This is a battle that's been taking place since the beginning of time. We can read about it in history. We experience it now. And the next generation is going to experience it too. So Revelation is this timeless uh, tool, this timeless resource that lets us know what's going on behind the scenes. So Jesus is telling John, what I'm about to give you is insight into what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. Does that make sense? So you can use this book to study history, to study the present time, and to study the future. Because it's relevant for all of those different errors. That's a pretty amazing resource if that's actually what Revelation does. And it's really a disservice to say it's only about a certain time in the future. Because why would God give it to this generation in 90-so AD if it didn't apply to them, right? It was very comforting to them as it can be to us, as it will be to a generation to come. So Jesus says to John, what I'm about to show you is a revelation of what is going on behind the scenes, what's going to go on behind the scenes forever and ever until the day of redemption comes. So there is an ending, and we'll talk about that. The reason for this book is to help the church cope with its struggle as being a reality the kingdom of God has always faced, but also to point to the end of the struggle, which is given at the end of the book. But from Revelations 2 to 18, Jesus gives John several windows into the battle the church faces. And the message can be summed up like this. Stay vigilant, remain confident. Stay vigilant, remain confident. Now, chapter 19, 20, 21, 22 is, a, is the comfort and the hope of the end, the consolation of all things, the ascension of the church in the, in the coming of the kingdom of God, heaven and earth become one. There is an ending. We haven't got there yet. Until we get there, stay vigilant and remain confident. So I think Revelation could be described as a fortress for the church to take refuge in. But every chapter is a window. Now, I think the best picture I can give you, and I think what John was intending on when he wrote this book, is kind of a tower and a castle, a tower and a fortress. At the top of that tower, there are several windows, right? You've seen this in movies, you've seen this in pictures, but those windows are all around the tower. So when you look out a window, you get a certain vantage point. But you move to the next window, you get a little bit of a different vantage point. Move to the next window, you get a different vantage point. But you're looking out, essentially the same tower at the same world, but you're looking through a certain vantage point at a time. So that's what my point is. Revelation is not a timeline, it's a circular group of windows that helps you see what's going on concurrently, but nonetheless behind the scenes. Does that make sense? 
a, wind, a castle, a fortress with these circular windows that you can look out and you can see what's going on behind the scenes. So every chapter is a window. Not, maybe not every chapter, but every so many chapters. Chapters 2 and 3 go together. Chapter 4 and 5 go together. Chapter 6 goes together and so forth. There are some that are grouped together. But nonetheless, every section is a window from chapter 2 to chapter 18. Revelation is meant to be this tower, this fortress for the church to take refuge in to ensconce the church so that we might observe what's going on the attacks coming at us and be reminded and galvanized around the fact that we have an unstoppable God with us. Here's the good news. That tower that we're in is so protected that no matter how many attacks come against it, it will not fall. Do you get that? It's like in a movie when they all gather in the fortress. If the fortress is not sturdy, they're worried. But if they're confident in the fortress... They have nothing to worry about. Unless, of course, they go outside the fortress, and that's, even, that's a whole other thing. Now, maybe the best chapter that helps us understand this book is chapter 12. We've studied this before. I think, actually, Christmas last year we studied this chapter, which lays it out better than any other chapter. Kind of gives us a picture of the, of the book, of the, of the scene, of the situation. Now, I want to read all of chapter 12, but we're going to do so by section, and we're going to briefly break it down. Again, this is not meant to be a deep dive, but I know we've talked a lot, but this is not meant to be a deep dive of the whole book. But we're going to break down this chapter quickly. Uh, verses 1 through 6, let's read those first, and let's break that, that passage down. This is a window that God is letting the people look out, letting us look out. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was called up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she, was a, where she has a place prepared by God that she should feed her there. He should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, that first uh, little image we get, woman clothed with the sun, stars, uh, moon under her feet, stars around her neck. That is a direct callback to the story of Joseph. Remember, Joseph had a dream uh, that he would be the ruler of his brothers and sisters, and this is what Genesis 37 tells us. When Joseph had that dream, he told his brothers about it. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing to me. So this is an image that we see throughout the Old Testament, but early on in the Bible, we see that this is referencing Israel, that all of the heavens, all of the time and history of the world kind of revolves around Israel and centers around Israel. That's the purpose of this, that the sun, the moon, the stars bow to Joseph, which is a picture of them bowing to Israel. Now, the fact that Israel is portrayed as a woman giving birth is all over the Old Testament. Isaiah, uh, Micah, it's all over the Old Testament that Israel was giving birth to something. So that being said, the woman is Israel. The woman is Israel. The dragon is Satan. I think we can, we can easily agree that the dragon is the devil, right? The woman is the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel that gives birth to the child that is called up to heaven after being attacked by the dragon. Of course, the child is Jesus 
And then after Jesus is called up to heaven, it says the woman flees to the wilderness for 1,260 days. Now again, this is not, there's not time enough to cover this, but just work with me. In Revelation, we have two mentions of these 1,260-day periods. Daniel refers to these periods in his prophecy as well as the time of the Gentiles. Jesus referred to the time of the Gentiles as in the time that Israel is off the map or off of the center or out of the center of, of the world's attention, that the world's being ruled by Gentile nations. Here we see Israel taking re- retreat in the wilderness while the Gentile nations are ruling in its place or in its stead. So the time of the Gentiles, that 1260 days, is just a, a big number, three and a half years, that represents the times of the Gentiles. It actually refers to a period in Israel's history when the temple was defiled by Antiochus of the, of the Greek Empire. He defiled the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar, and during that time period, the Jews were worried that they weren't going to be able to, to recover. Of course, they did. But that was, again, a picture of what they were facing in this time. So that 1260 days, times of the Gentiles. Um, so now... The Jews, in this period that we're talking about in Acts, they're suffering persecution um, from the hand of Rome. So we kind of see things starting to build here, and we'll get to that in a minute. Let's read Revelation 12, 7 through, or 7 through 12. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. They did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He's cast to the earth. His angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying, In heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ, have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the, to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Now, Revelation 7, or 12, 7 through 12 is a picture of what we face in this current age. The people of God, the church. Established by Christ after his ascension. So Christ is going to heaven. The church is established in his stead. And what this passage describes is the church enduring persecution. The enemy brings all the forces of hell against the kingdom of God. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. Woe to you inhabitants of the earth, for you face this persecution. This is a picture of the church facing and enduring persecution. But what about the woman? What about Israel? Because that's still important to the story. Verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who would give birth to the child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. She might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and a time and a half from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away from, by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth, swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And that's just speaking of attacks against the woman. The dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who kept the commandments of God and had the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, the offspring there refers to the church, the spiritual descendants of Israel, because it's from the woman that Christ came. It's from Israel, Christ came, from Christ the church came. 
But here we talk here the mention of Israel, who is also persecuted to an oblivion, into a non-existence practically. Meanwhile, her offspring is not destroyed, but does indeed face great persecution along the way. Now, so the setup we have for this current age, which we are now a part of, still a part of, is the church facing persecution in Israel also facing opposition. The verses that we focus most on in this passage should be that verses 10 through 12, the battle we face, the promise of our victory that we must, and the, and the ability for us to endure. The enemy will crack his whip to rally his troops, to attempt to bully the people of God, stifle the mission of God, hopefully prevent us from winning more. But we must endure, and we can endure. Now, all that being said, go back to Acts 18, and I want to show you why I think Acts 18 is a, is a Revelation 12 snapshot, maybe better than anything else in the Bible. Acts 18, verse 1 through 2. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. He found certain, a certain Jew there named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. Now that's very important for us to make, to make note of. So here we have not Christians being persecuted, but Jews are being persecuted and expelled from Rome. Why is that? Well, thankfully, we have an extra-biblical source, a Roman historian that helps us get a little deeper. Suetonius is a Roman historian. He wrote this in the mid-50s. Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, the emperor expelled them from Rome. Now, that's Suetonius' spelling, not the accurate spelling. Crestus is, of course, a reference to Christus, which is Christ. And he's just a historian. He didn't know what he's talking about. He's just saying, the Jews, there's always these problems in the Jewish communities around this person called Christ. And Emperor Claudius kept noticing these Jewish communities. There's all kind of riots and all kind of activity. And in some cases, there's this explosive growth. In some cases, there's a bunch of Gentiles joining these communities. And these communities that are called synagogues are even transforming into these places called churches. And the Roman Empire gets very wary of this activity that's centered around the Jews. From Rome's vantage point, it makes little sense, but they're concerned about it being a threat to them. They're concerned about numbers and riots and opposition to the emperor. They're concerned about it, and they don't like it. You, you see, they had allowed Judaism to have freedom of religion, freedom of practice in Rome, because it was so old and it was so static. But now, all of a sudden, the Jewish communities are being radicalized around this new prophet named Christ, named Jesus. And Rome doesn't know anything about that guy, but they know that they killed him. And that's not good news to the Roman Empire because they killed him for being a, a, a possible threat against the emperor. It's what Pilate wrote down on the books. So all this is making the Roman Empire very nervous. And formerly, Judaism was given freedom to practice, but now things are not so kosher to them so Rome decides around 50 AD, Claudius decides to use the entire Jewish population as a scapegoat. So the Jews are exiled from Rome. So Claudius, here in verse 2, we're given the mention of it. Claudius says, all the Jews, you've got to leave. Get out, get out of the empire. You're not welcome here anymore. If you stay here, you're going to die. 
Because something's going on in your communities, and we don't know all the details because we're on the outside, but we don't like it, and if it keeps up, we're going to just go to the source and get and, and end all of it, which is what they do. In 70 AD, Rome goes to the source of the Jewish faith, raises the Jewish temple, destroys Jerusalem, and wipes the nation of Israel off the map, crucifying hundreds of thousands of Jews Week after week, the Jewish wars end in a bloody, fiery mess in 70 AD, August the 9th of 70 AD. And Israel ceases to exist. The woman goes to the wilderness, as in the nation of Israel is scattered to the nations, yet God holds them in his hands, and of course they would come back together when that time of the Gentiles comes to an end. And of course, the nation of Israel has already come back together, so we can see we're closer to the end than we may realize because the nation does exist, and it is on the map. After 70 AD to 1948, it didn't exist. So now we see that Revelation 12 kind of story coming into full, coming at full circle, right? The woman retreated to the wilderness for a while, but now the woman, the nation, is back together. But, but meanwhile, also, beginning in 64 AD, Christians come under state-sponsored persecution as well. So here in Acts 18, we see that Revelation 12 picture coming together, don't we? The Jews are scapegoated and persecuted, and the Christians are persecuted from 64 AD to, until 313 AD. The church is persecuted by the Roman Empire state-sponsored persecution. Christians are fed to lions. They build an arena just to kill them. Nero builds a circus, which isn't the circus that you went to when you were a kid, but a place where Christians are tortured for sport. The Colosseum is built where they are killed, cut into pieces by gladiators. Christians are crucified every single day, set on fire by Nero. Christian persecution didn't stop after 13, uh, 313 A.D., but of course Roman state-sponsored persecution did end on that day when Constantine became a Christian and made it illegal to persecute Christians. And eventually Christianity becomes the state-sponsored religion, showing how God worked into the people's favor. But of course the church would still face persecution, whether not from Rome per se, but from other sources of the enemy. So do you see why Acts 18 is a big moment in church history? Why it's a Revelation 12 snapshot, a microcosm of what the people of God have always faced and always will face. And also as the nation of Israel is a part of that story as well. As the church spread and spread, the gospel changed more and more lives. And here in Acts 18, the enemy is sending a message. Turn around or else. Because the church is getting a little bit too close to the heart of the empire where it might would change the world beyond control. But guess what? Do you think that deters Paul one bit? Absolutely not. Actually, two Jewish Christians, Priscilla, Aquila, and Priscilla, running from the Roman Empire, they meet Paul, and they realize we don't need to run for our lives because here's a fearless man that we can join forces with and continue to help strengthen the churches because they were Jewish, but they were also Christians. And they join forces with Paul, and they help his movement going forward. Don't you see how God turned that point into a fa- point that, that into a point of favor he always does 
They joined forces. They work out of Corinth. Verse 3 tells us they were both of the same trade, and he stayed with them and worked for by occupation. They were tent makers, and tent maker literally means they were workers of leather, so they didn't just make tents, but they, they, they took animal hides and they made leather uh, uh, sheets and, 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 and uh, curtains and, and, and things out of them that people could use for their homes and for their you know, dwelling places, uh, for clothing and other things. So Paul was a tent maker to help fund, to help live, because he didn't get, there wasn't nobody paying him to do this stuff back then, but he still had to eat, of course. So Aquila, Priscilla, Paul, they worked together. Verse 8, 4 says, they reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So even though Rome was going to come down on the Jews and persecute them, even though Rome was beginning to sniff around the church and investigate what this Christ guy was all about, Paul doesn't stop. And Aquila and Priscilla, they aren't afraid either. Paul would go on to write this about them in Romans chapter 16. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risk their necks for my life. Now you know what Paul's talking about, don't you? They were running for their lives from Rome. Paul meets them and they realize, wow, we don't have anything to be afraid of. The church is growing. And yeah, the enemy's coming against us, but this is the reality that we live in. We must not give up. We must not give in. Paul says the church should be grateful for these, this man and this woman because they helped build the Gentile church when it was under fire. The question is, would we risk our necks for the same cause? Let's read a little bit more. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said, your blood is on your own heads. I am clean, for now on I will go to the Gentiles. He departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. So the, the, the synagogue leader becomes a Christian, moves over to the house of justice where the church was getting started. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Now again, there's a lot of tension, a lot of, a lot of investigation, a lot of unrest, a lot of fear and uncertainty going on right now. So God says to Paul, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. So again, think about that Revelation 12 snapshot. Enemy attacking from every angle, but we're looking through the lens. We see the bigger picture. God is on our side, and we will overcome if we continue to do our job, preach the word. We don't have any reason to be afraid. Verse 11 he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So this is how God responds to the threats of Rome and the threats of Corinth. This is what he says to us tonight. This is why we should be encouraged and remain on our mission as focused as ever because the church is truly unstoppable if we trust in the Lord. The Jewish people knew that Rome was targeting them because of the Christians and became especially combative and the next passage is an example of that, verse 12 through 17, and we'll close. When Gallio, the proconsul of Acacia, the, the Jews, with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, now you know, because Rome was sniffing around the synagogues, the Jews were trying to cover their tails because they were worried Rome was going to persecute them for the Christian's sake, and they didn't want to be a part of it, but we know that that was that Rome didn't care. They were just going to persecute anybody they thought was a threat to them. 
So the Jews were trying to throw the church, kind of disassociate with the church. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of your words, of the words and names of your own law, look to, your, look to it for yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. So Gallio kind of breaks rank from his Roman masters and says, You know what? I'm not, I'm not getting into this. If y'all have a problem with the Christians, y'all figure it out. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Thucydides, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took notice of these things. So now you have the Gentiles. Again, they're worried because of what Rome has just signaled from the top. We are not going to tolerate this movement growing. We're going to persecute the Jews if we need to, expel the Jews if we have to, and we're keeping our eye on the church. So now you have some people here in Corinth. They want to make sure that they are not on the side of the church, and they're not on the side of the Jews. So they take this leader of the synagogue, and they beat him just because they could. This guy, Susanes, is a special case. Now, there's never, when you read names in the Bible that you don't think are important, look again, because they just might show up again somewhere. Susanes here was the synagogue leader who no doubt brought this case before Gallio to try to say, hey, you need to do something about these Christians. They're causing trouble. I don't want to suffer for it. And then he gets beat up by these Greeks because they just want to send a message themselves. Here he is opposing the church, gets beat for opposing the church by the Greeks who don't care either. But remember, Paul remains in Corinth for 18 months and you know what happens in that time span? Paul goes on to write 1 Corinthians, the letter to the church. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sustenes to the church of God that is at Corinth. Now that mention of Sustenes there at the beginning of this letter lets us know that he was no doubt the pastor of the Corinthian church. He was the leader of the synagogue who opposed the church, got beat up by the Greeks just because, because of all this tension and chaos. And somehow, someway, he becomes a Christian and he becomes a pastor of the very church he tried to shut down. Isn't that an awesome example of how God can redeem? And also, isn't that an example of how God can cause people to not be afraid of the consequences of serving him? All because Paul didn't give up. He would not give in to the threats of the enemy in the fright of this world. Paul goes on to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come as an orator or a philosopher, but I came deciding to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. What did Revelation 12 tell us? They overcame the enemy by the word of their testimony and the blood of the lamb. So what did Paul do to fight the enemy? He just preached the gospel. He didn't back down. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians to write about our hope in Christ. And even when we come up against death, we don't have to be afraid because we have a resurrection promise. At the end of the book, he goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 15 after reminding them of the resurrection, thanks be to God who gives us victory through Christ Jesus our Lord, through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. No matter what you may be going through, it may feel like all of hell and its forces are opposing you. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding, because your labor is not in vain. So church, when the enemy cracks his whip, do we get startled? Of course we do. Do we back down? All the time. Do we panic? Yes. But should we? No. Paul doubled his efforts, united with other believers. He stayed committed as ever to the church. Those few verses there in verse 9 through 11 where the Lord says, do not be afraid, but speak, continue to preach. I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Paul stayed there for a year and a half. So Acts 18, really verses 9 through 11, but the whole chapter should be a great comfort to us in this Revelation 12 world that we live in. Eventually, Roman persecution would cost Aquila and Priscilla and Paul their necks. But all of them would die willingly because they weren't afraid. Paul says in 2 Timothy, his dying words, For I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness with the Lord. The righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all those who love his appearing. You see, we don't all live to see the end, but that Revelation 12 snapshot is a cycle that we all live through and come to that point potentially of persecution and it may cost us our lives it did Paul but he stayed vigilant he stayed confident and he died excited about what was to come knowing confident that he was not dying in vain can the same be said of us both Paul example and John's revelation remind us that we are safe in the Lord's care but it should also embolden us that we have a mission to finish. We don't need to be afraid. We have an unstoppable God on our side. So let's show the world the unstoppable force behind us. And let's remind the world that there's a mission that we have been called to finish. And we're not going to let a crack of the enemy's whip cause us to back down. We're going to stay as vigilant and as confident as ever. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to be in your house tonight. Lord, we live in a Revelation 12 world. The enemy surrounds us. He threatens us, discourages us, attacks us, attempting to stop us from going and growing. But we are not going to back down. We are not going to cower. We are not afraid. Because we believe in your story. We believe your word we hear what you told Paul, don't be silent, remain on the mission field, preach the word boldly and confidently. God, help us to see every single day there is a mission we must accomplish, and as it gets tense, as it gets difficult, as it gets uncomfortable, as we feel like we're being opposed, let us all the more stay 
vigilant, and remain confident. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us tonight. May we take this snapshot and take courage from Acts 18 where your servants show us the way we should act, the way we should respond to a world that opposes. Thank you, Lord. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.